Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Together. Um, Father, thank you for your love for us, and thank you that there, we can trust that the gospel is a celebration, that, that it brings us to a place of joy and fullness and overflow, and even, even though that's not often how we think of it. And so we pray today that you would move in our hearts to be able to see Jesus more clearly, to understand who he is and what his kingdom is like more fully, and we pray that you would speak to us through your word to accomplish your purposes. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in John's Gospels. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to John chapter 2. There may be a few more. We have um, ESV journaling Bibles. If you'd like to grab one on the back book table, you can get up right now and grab one. Don't worry about standing up, and they're available to you as well. And, and so today we're continuing in that study, John, with chapter 2. And today we see something of Jesus' kingdom. This is, this is something that strikes for every one of us because we love the idea of kingdoms. There's something that we get caught up in in that. And And that comes in a variety of ways, right? Like, some of you are Lord of the Rings fans, and so you get introduced to Aragorn early on in the story, and you're just waiting throughout the books for him to take his place as the rightful king in the White City. Um, For some of you, it might be mythology, like King Arthur, or, you know, this is always one of the funny things for Americans is, like, we had a revolution to throw off monarchy, and we are still completely obsessed with it. Like, we'll, th- we'll, we'll set off fireworks on July 4th and put up a big display here celebrating we are better and then tune into the crown when we get home. And so we, we love it. We're obsessed with it. Maybe it's, not, maybe it's not your inner Anglophile that comes out, but even then we think about kingdoms like, because right now it feels like there's either, movies are either period pieces or they're Marvel Comics universe, right? There's, those are our two options. And even there we have Wakanda, And Black Panther shows us an idyllic kingdom that we wish existed. We see language and reality of kingdoms all the way through Scripture as well. I mean, God warns his people about what a king will bring, but we see with Saul, the first king over Israel, and then David, and then Solomon, and on and on, and we have the chronicles of the kings and their reigns in Israel and in Judah. And Jesus is presented as the king. The Messiah, the anointed one. We saw last week that that language even has connotations of prophet, priest, and king. But his kingly reign is an essential part of what happens, of what we need to see when we see Jesus. And, and so when we look at Jesus, that brings up the question of what is his kingdom like? And so I want you to think about that today. What do you think about when you think about God's kingdom? What is it like in your mind? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus when we're told that we, are, we become citizens of that kingdom? What are the connotations and implications that you think through? Well, today we see that Jesus is the ultimate king. And the story that is, is one of my favorites, and one, it's one that only John records. And so 
Um, Follow along as I read from John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each held 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That passage doesn't sound like it has to do with a kingdom, does it? It sounds like a wedding. What I hope you'll be able to see, though, is that Jesus choosing to manifest his glory in this miracle at a wedding feast has deep implications and echoes of kingdom language that we see throughout Scripture. It's a reflection of the messianic kingdom, the kingdom that he was bringing. And and so this feast imagery and the idea of a wedding feast is everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 25 and Revelation 19, that in the old covenant, the Hebrew Bible expectation of the coming Messiah was pictured as a wedding feast. In Revelation 19, we read about the wedding supper of the Lamb, that it's a portrait of eternity in Jesus' presence, that those who go to be with God in his presence and in the presence of his glory for eternity, it's pictured as a wedding feast. And so here, there's more going on than just having enough wine for a wedding celebration. And this is what we're going to look at today. The big idea that we have today is that the best is yet to come. And we have, I have seven observations or seven characteristics of God's kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom that we'll look at today, because it sounded like a very complete number. So here's what we see. First, Jesus provides true rest. John doesn't often count days for us. And actually, we're going to see next week that John isn't strictly chronologically written. John is, is, has theological aims in the way that he captures and writes his gospel, And so we saw this even in chapter 1, right, that he introduces John the Baptist a couple of times before he gets to a story about John. And, and, and so his, we can't say that his gospel is strictly a linear storytelling, and I don't think it is at all. But here in this first couple of chapters, he starts by recording the number of days that something happened. And so these, there was this testimony of John, and, and some people came to him, and the next day, and the next day. And when you add up those days in chapter 1 into chapter 2, and we have on the third day after that, there's a wedding at Cana, the number comes out to seven. I don't think this is reading too much into it. John is a nuanced writer. He includes a lot of important and symbolic detail throughout his gospel. And and his gospel definitely has a feeling to it that he drops little hints along the way, these little breadcrumb trails you can follow, but you're not going to catch them on your first reading through. 
And so his gospel is written in a way that as you read it and reread it and reread it, you'll start to see some of these details emerge. And so here, I think he's giving us some, some an understanding here that, that there's, on the seventh day, Jesus provided a celebration. Now, the seventh day throughout the Bible is, it has massive meaning to it. If you remember in creation, what happened on the seventh day? God rested. One of you is listening to me. <laughs> all right, on the seventh day, God rested from all, the, all of his work. It was the only day that didn't end in, in, chapter, in chapter one into two. Every other day it said there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That doesn't happen on the seventh, but God rested from his work on the seventh day. And, and, and that was a, an implication of that this is the way we were created to live. We were created to live in perfect unity and in harmony with our creator and with the world he had made and given to, to human beings to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over and to cultivate in the garden that he had given them and, and perfect unity with each other. But human rebellion and sin put up walls in every area. And since then, the rest of the biblical storyline is God's loving pursuit of human beings trying to recover our own ability to rest in his presence and escape from the mess we got ourselves into. This informs what happens in the law, that the Sabbath is the seventh day, a day of rest to refocus our eyes on God, that the promised land was supposed to be a place of rest that God's people never achieved. And so here we get to the seventh day and for Jesus' first act in his public ministry, he only had five followers at this point. And he brings them to this place and what do we see is that it looks like a wedding celebration. Now, I don't know what weddings were like for you growing up. For us, I have, I have a pretty big family. Alyssa's family is much, much smaller. Um, and so, like, when we first got married, it was, like, cousins on cousins on cousins. And, and sometimes, I don't, do any of you have families like this where you're like, I'm not even sure how you're my cousin? Or whether that's, like, second cousin or second cousin once removed or third cousins. or You start to do that, that lineage and try to figure it out, and your brain starts to hurt. And I was like, I don't know. I just call him Uncle Larry. Like, you know, it's just, that's, this is the family. And so when you get together for a wedding, you basically see each other at weddings and funerals at, at, at a certain point in life. But when you get together for weddings, it's a celebration. You get to see everybody. You get to hang out with all the cousins and all the family. And, and, and it's a place where you get to step out of whatever is happening in life and enjoy the time with the people that, that you love. As a pastor, I get to do some weddings. And... I get a unique perspective when I get to get to officiate a wedding, one that nobody else gets, because I get to watch the faces of all of the family and friends of the bride and groom as they come forward. And then as they exchange vows with each other, I get to see them on the backdrop of their family and friends, all those who are witnessing this covenant as two lives become one. The weddings are a beautiful portrait of so much. I have three kids who are adolescents, and I hope someday that I'll get to walk through what it means to be a dad at a wedding, too. But what we see at this wedding, that Jesus is, his first miracle, is that in his kingdom, Jesus provides true rest. Second characteristic of Jesus' kingdom is that he is the only authority in his kingdom. I love what happens here. Because Mary is his mom, and she acts just like a mom. <laughs> right? Jesus, they're out of wine. 
And I love his response. Like, there's so much intonation that we could read this with, and I think we need to be a little bit careful here because the word woman, like, if, if I called my mom woman, <laughs> I think even today as a 41-year-old man, <laughs> like, I, it wouldn't go, if I called my wife woman, like, we're talking about a week's worth of conversations to try to dig out of that hole. But it, I don't, so I don't think, and it, it, like intonation here, right? Like I had to be careful when I was reading it. Even in like the sound check this morning, I was reading, just reading the passage as they were checking the microphone and I was like, got to that point and it was like, woman! I was like, no, 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 no. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here. I think it was polite, not overly affectionate, but not outstanding or harsh. I, th- I don't think it would have stood out to Mary. In fact, he addresses her the same way when he's on the cross, And here I think it's just like we would say, ma'am. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? It literally here, it's what is that to you or to me? He's saying, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, they're out of wine. But then he goes on and look what he says. My hour has not yet come. We have no idea what Mary was expecting out of Jesus here. Like, I think that we can, again, overread this sometimes, and I've heard people talk about this and be like, Mary must have been used to Jesus doing this all the time. Like, like their well must have just been, he's like, wine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's, I think it's probably a little bit of conjecture that isn't helpful in the context here. I don't know that Mary had much expectation. But there is, even though I think it's gentle, I think there's a firmness and an element of rebuke to what Jesus is saying. And that had to be hard for Mary. I mean, think about that. She had birthed Jesus. And if you think she didn't remind him of that, you don't have a mom. Like, you've gotten that, right? I carried you for nine months. <laughs> she had nursed Jesus. She had helped Jesus to walk. She had learned how to walk. She helped him learn to eat and how to use his hands. She helped him through puberty and adolescence. She helped him out with all of those things. It's likely that she had come to depend on him as well. Because we don't hear about Joseph again after Luke mentions him that he was, when Jesus had got, you know, stayed behind in the temple when he was about 12 years old, that's the only look we really get at Jesus' childhood, and Joseph isn't mentioned again. Jesus, in multiple places in the Gospels, is is called both the carpenter's son and the carpenter. And so it's likely that Joseph died at some point, that Jesus had taken up the family business and was Mary's provider as well as her firstborn son. And so in all of that context, here, I doubt that Mary was asking Jesus to perform this miracle. I don't think she had it in her mind, go to, take these, go to these purification jars and make an abundance of wine, Jesus. And I think she was probably just looking at him and out of, this was probably a, a connected family, if not their own extended family. Like there's a reason that they're invited to this and that Jesus' followers are welcome too. And so I think likely what Mary was doing was she was feeling and absorbing the sense of shame that the groom's family was going to feel for running out of wine and not being able to provide enough for the wedding celebration that she was coming to Jesus as the only one she could turn to just saying, oh no, they're out of wine. Is there anything we can do? But Jesus says to her, do you see what he says? And Jesus does this so often where he'll say something that has a surface level meaning, but then then has layers and layers and layers that get pulled through. He says to her, my hour has not yet come. Consistently in John's gospel, when Jesus talks about the hour, he is talking explicitly about his death. And again, he calls Mary woman on the cross 
And so throughout John, we see that the glory of the Christ, of the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, is primarily seen in his death and resurrection. And so there's echoes of it here, of him saying, it is not time for my glory to be seen in its fullness yet. And so we need to see this here. What I, one aspect of what I want you to see is, that is to realize, again, Jesus is the, as the one, the Messiah, is the only authority in his kingdom. And if Jesus can't be pressured by his own mom, then we've got no shot. Jesus is no pawn for our politics. He's no genie for our wishes that's going to grant whatever we want. He's not a knight to go fight battles for our personal kingdoms. He's the king. And he is one that provides true rest, but he's also the only true authority. But this leads to the third characteristic as well, that Jesus will provide for our needs. So let's talk about what actually happened in this miracle. Because I think there's ways that we can minimize this or talk about it crassly or sometimes just ignore it. Like, I think for some, there's, we look at this and we're like, all we see in this is that we like wine, and Jesus made water into wine, and we're like, see, I can like wine. And I wish Jesus could come to my kitchen. <laughs> I don't think that's getting out of this miracle what it was and understanding the revealed glory of Jesus. On the other side, I think that some have worked really, really, really hard to try to make arguments that this couldn't be real wine, which seems really silly. And people make all kinds of arguments about, well, water at the time wasn't really good to drink, and so they had to dilute the wine, and so this was like 10 parts water to one part wine. And then you realize that the wine that they were used to drinking was enough that people could drink it freely, and then they could bring out the cheap stuff and they wouldn't realize it, and you realize that that was not diluted wine. So Jesus made real wine, and it was the best wine that the master of the banquet had ever tasted in his life. And I think on the other hand, we can have a tendency to ignore this miracle. I don't think many people go to this as a first thing, unless you're at a wedding, and then almost every wedding, if it's a Christian wedding, you'll hear the pastor say, Jesus loves marriage, and we know that he supports the institution of marriage because he performed his first miracle at Cana. And that's about the only time we mention this. And the rest of the time, when we think about Jesus' miracles, what do you think about? We think about him healing people. We think about demons being cast out. We might think about storms being stilled. So why doesn't this one make the cut the same way? Well, I think the background here will help us understand what actually happened. Again, I think this is likely a family friend, if not extended family, because that's why Jesus and his mom were invited and Jesus' followers were invited. Um, weddings at this point could last for a week. Like we, I don't know about you, I've never been to a wedding like this kind of wedding. We think big extravagant weddings on one night, but this is, this would, the one night was just the beginning point of a whole week of celebration, and it was up to the groom's family to provide financially, and so a shortage in wine would have brought intense shame on the family and could even bring lawsuits from the bride's family, and so this was a crisis. The jars, we need to understand those too. The stone jars were used for ceremonial purposes, for washing. And so each jar held some, all estimates are all different. Um, some estimates between eight and nine gallons. Here it says that, that they were bigger than that in the ESV's translation. Um, and so we don't, we don't quite know, but we know that there were stone jars for ritual purification. It says that in the text, but also archaeological data backs, backs this up. For purification ceremonies, for Jewish people, 
the water needed to either be contained in stone containers, because that would keep it pure, or be running water, like in a river. And so these containers were at wedding kind of facilities for a, for a variety of reasons. It could be washing utensils, not like dishwashing liquid, like that, that would be gross. Like the utensils after they had been washed would be ritually purified by a second washing in the water in the stone jars or for guests to wash their hands. And so this was for ritual purification. Now, on the wine that was produced here, the Bible, we read scripture, and the Bible is clear about a couple of things. First, scripture is clear that the misuse and, or overuse of alcohol, like any of God's gifts, is something that we need to be aware of and careful about. That wine can be addictive, and it is, and consistently drunkenness is called out as wrong in scripture. And scripture is clear that wine is a gift of God to gladden hearts. And so in the same way that sex is a gift of God that can destroy our lives by, using, by being used wrongly, it's something that we need to be aware of. But here, let's not, that, that's not the debate of this passage. That's an American Christian issue that we import into this. What we need to understand culturally is that wine, and biblically, is a symbol throughout scripture of feasting and abundance and joy. It's something that, is, that does gladden our hearts. It is a gift of God. And so it run, it, the, there's a deeper symbol here than just the practical reality of running out of wine, that the wine was at the center of the feast and a symbol of joy in the feast. And so you can imagine this because we have all been to parties that have people gathered together and should be festive, but there is no sense of joy in the room, right? Like the kind of a party where you're like, I, I don't know how to leave, <laughs> And I'm scared that if I leave, everybody else will leave too. And so there's risk here for the family of shame. There's a risk of, of a joyous occasion in a wedding being turned to a crisis. There's a deep reality here of the, sh of the shame potential on this family. And this is where, again, I think we need to see that there are layers to what's happening. Jesus meets their need in that they were out of wine, and there was a very practical reality, a tangible reality that he met. But much deeper than that is that he provided a way for joy and celebration to replace a crisis in shame. My goodness, do we need that word today? Do I need that today? Because I have all kinds of tangible things I would like Jesus to fix for me. I have all kinds of financial things I would love for Jesus to fix for me. I have all kinds of, of relational things and family things and issues as a husband and as a parent and as, as a pastor and all kinds of things that I was like, if I could be like, Jesus, straighten this out for me. And I, I pray every day that, it, that he will help with some of those practical things. But we need to understand that Jesus will meet our practical needs in, in a, oftentimes in ways we can't expect, but he also has, but more important to Jesus is meeting our deepest needs. And I don't think this miracle is just about wine. It's about lifting up a whole family and a new marriage from shame. And so you need to hear today that Jesus knows your darkest shadows. He sees you, and he sees your shame. He knows past, present, and future, real and potential. And he'll meet your deepest need. And we have the promise that anyone who comes to him will never be put to shame. So Jesus will provide for our needs. The fourth characteristic of his kingdom is that Jesus does a new work that replaces the old. 
This is a major theme of the Gospels, especially these few chapters we're in in John. John chapters 2 to 4, we see this, that Jesus goes to the temple next week. That's a doozy. You won't want to miss out on it. Um, then we, Jesus meets with a religious teacher named Nicodemus. He ends up in Samaria. And so we were talking with a woman at a well. And so he shows here there's this, there's this reversal thing that's happening in, these, in this beginning of his ministry in John, where John is showing clearly Jesus is bringing something new that totally defies what, has, what had been. And that it was, it was something that the religious leaders of the time could not come to grips with and could not wrap their minds around. Luke talks about this, too, in, a, in another way, that Jesus was confronted about, about fasting. And you hear some of, the, some of the critique here of Jesus' fullness of celebration. And so it says in Luke chapter 5 that the religious leaders said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, as do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. <laughs> Jesus, why do your people celebrate? Religion should be harder. But Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear, out, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst out of the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new. For he says, the old is good. See, Jesus brought something that was outside of the expectations of the people at the time that he came. This is what we saw in John chapter 1, right? That the light came into the darkness, but the darkness did not know him. And so he wasn't recognized by those who were religious leaders at the time. And here in John chapter 2, we have an important symbol here that you have pitchers, jars made of stone that are made for ritual cleanliness and ceremonial cleanliness and as part of the old laws and old customs. Those jars, did you notice in the text that when, when Mary said, do whatever he tells you, there were six stone water jars, and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. That's when Jesus said, now draw some and bring it to the master of the feast. See, the, water, the jars were filled to the brim, and I believe here that we are seeing something in what John wrote, a symbol that the old law and the need for ceremonial cleansing was completely filled to the brim, ultimately in Christ when his hour came. That the time of ceremonial purification was completely fulfilled, and Jesus had something better in store. That rather than needing to continually return to ceremonial cleansing, he was bringing the wine of the feast of the eternal kingdom so that people could enjoy and rest and drink fully and celebrate and raise a glass to their king. And so here we have the beginnings and echoes of that. And, and I think it's possible here for us, too, to get caught up in this and, and where we can look back and read the Gospels and kind of look down on the people that, we, that are in these stories. We look down on the religious leaders of the time and think like, how did you guys miss all this? You were too stuck on your own rules, on your own expectations. We look down on the Pharisees and Sadducees and look down on the people that missed it with Jesus and, and, and had their expectations. We look down on the disciples when they miss, had miss, messed up expectations, which happens a ton in the Gospels. Because we look back, understanding the fullness of the story, and we go, like, how did you miss this? 
Maybe it'd be more helpful if we realized that we do the same things. We have expectations for how God will work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rooted in God's word, centered on the gospel. You think the Pharisees didn't know the Bible? And so we get stuck in patterns and systems and approaches. And, and so we, and, and we, maybe you've had great experiences in your life in other cities and other churches around other people and other programmatic structures. And praise God for all of that. And don't confine God to it. Think about the things we cling to. We cling to programmatic shapes and structures for how we do church as if this is the final answer on we finally got it right. 2,000 years of Christian history, but our church got it. Sunday school, mentoring, Bible studies, age, gender, age specific ministries, community groups. Yeah, 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 let's do what we can to do what God is calling us to now, but we've got to be careful not to make a programmatic structure of the church into the gospel. Music styles, preaching style and length. This is the crazy thing in church shopping, right? You bounce around and evaluate like with a scorecard. Well, I liked this church's, church's music, and I, but this preacher, was, he, the preacher wasn't that great. He went too long. <laughs> we look at size, number of services, multiplication, theological hobby horses, different aspects of diversity, ecclesiology, the role of leaders. The, we look at different a- approaches to Christian freedom. And, and the problem that we have is that if you are a follower of Jesus, then my hope is that you have a desire to see revival happen in your lifetime and through the churches that you're involved in. We all want that. But what's, the problem is that rather than a sensitivity to the Spirit, yes, rooted in God's Word, yes, in the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ, but a sensitivity to the Spirit of God and how He's going to move and He's going to work in our church in this place at this time and instead we look back at previous movements and try to import them in as if God can't do anything fresh. We've got to be careful. C.S. Lewis in his sermon The Weight of Glory said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus does new work that replaces the old. His kingdom is made up of this new work. The fifth characteristic of his kingdom is that Jesus leads the way in celebration. You can't escape that in this passage, right? Like, if there's anything here, it's that Jesus is, is the actual master of the feast. The master of the feast doesn't have an answer for running out of wine. The master of the feast was somebody that was hired to, as like a, an MC. He was conducting things. The people would hire him to keep things going and run the courses and meals and, and toasts and get, keep people going. We've, again, we've been at weddings, right, where somebody should have gotten the toasts moving better than they did. And it's so somebody to keep things lively and, and, and in the midst of that, introduce what was happening and keep people in along the way. And so here, like, but it's, it, he wouldn't have had an answer for running out of wine. And in fact, 
not having an answer probably would have just brought greater shame on the family. And so here, Jesus is the one who leads the way in celebration. And again, I ask the question, is this the way you think about God's kingdom? I think too often when we think about being a citizen of God's kingdom, we think about like our duty, the things we need to do and shouldn't do and have a responsibility for, and it's weighty and it's heavy and discipleship is costly. And that's true. But do you ever, do you ever enjoy it? Or is it all just miserable? Jesus leads the way in celebration. Now again, some people have, <laughs> have taken all kinds of lengths to try to explain things away here on why Jesus couldn't have been providing true wine. Um, there's one, I think the best one that I read was that some have tried to argue that the master of the banquet's words are actually sarcastic, saying everyone has served the good wine first. When people have drunk, they bring the poor wine, but you've brought the good wine now. And, that what they, and I read one commentator that said what he realized at this moment is that pure water, Adam's ale, is the best kind. That is indefensible here. And sad. But how we picture Jesus in the, in the kingdom says a lot. It's, it tells us a lot about how we view our lives. It tells us a lot about our understanding of Christianity, our perspective on God. There's a show that's come out that has a couple of seasons out. It's got its own app. It's called The Chosen. I don't know if any of you have watched it. Um, I've been really moved by the portrayal of Jesus and the background stories they try to provide for different people that we read about in the Gospels that we don't get any detail on. So it's, it's really fascinating, and my kids are into it. Um, and, um, but they, have, they did an episode on this wedding. And I just want you to see a picture, a screenshot from that episode Jesus is the one with the blue shawl on his shoulders, in case you didn't catch that. <laughs> but here, do you see the scene? I think it's hard, it might be hard for some of you even to believe that Jesus is the leader in celebration to the point that it's hard to picture a celebratory wedding with him at it. But here, he's dancing with his followers, with his friends, and with people at the feast. He was celebrating and singing and was known and was helping out with things. And then Mary pulled him aside so he could make, and said there was this problem with the wine. And, and so, so here it was Jesus that was the one facilitating the continued joy at the feast for the people that were in attendance. Is that how you think of Jesus? And if not, why not? Now again, we've all been to parties that gather people but have no joy, but we've also been around people who bring joy wherever they are, and every time they're with you, it feels like a celebration. They lift your heart. That's Jesus. He's the one that leads the way in celebration. He's the ultimate master of the feast. And in eternity, we are told that we will feast with him forever at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That means we will dance with Jesus that we will enjoy raising a glass with Jesus, that, but it also means that in eternity there will be no anxiety, there will be no fear, there will, there will be no risk of overdoing it, of celebrating too much. There'll be, it'll be full-on enjoyment in the presence of God and, and enjoyment of life to its absolute fullness. There'll be no shame for being a bad dancer. Thanks be to God. If we are in his kingdom, that's what we get to bring then into the world that he created. 
We're conduits for joy and celebration. That's what God's people are called to, is to be conduits of joy and celebration into this world, to be light in darkness. And that's why in the worst of sorrow, in the worst of suffering, in the worst that we experience, we can still laugh and dance and celebrate because we look ahead to something better. The sixth characteristic is that Jesus reveals his glory to those who follow him. I love this, and I, 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 hope, I hope you saw something of it. If not, look, look with me. When the master of the feast, in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the, the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but, but you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want you to catch this. Do you remember Nathaniel at the end of chapter 1? We just looked at this last week, that Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, and, and, and Nathaniel goes, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. But Jesus answered, because I said I saw you under the fig tree? That's all it took? Oh, truly, I tell you, you're going you're gonna to see greater things than these, Nathaniel. Do you remember in John 1, 14, that, that we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, in this miracle at Cana, it wasn't just about water and wine. It was a manifestation of his glory. And do and you notice here, the master of the feast had no idea where it came from, but enjoyed its benefits, as did the rest of the wedding guests. The servants knew where it came from, but it doesn't say that Jesus' glory was manifested to them or showed up to them. But the, to the disciples, those who were following Jesus, it was evidence of his glory. Their eyes were opened. The veil was pulled back on the glory of Jesus, at least in a glimmer, and the result was that they believed in him. This is, see, the, 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 it is characteristic of Jesus' kingdom that he will reveal his glory to those who follow him. My fear for some of you today is that you can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can study theology, you can do the right things, you can say the right things, you can know all about Jesus, but never see his glory. Never see the joy and celebration of his kingdom. Again, the servants saw the sign, the guests received the benefit, but it was Jesus' followers who saw his glory. And that's my hope for you. Every week as we open God's word, especially in the Gospel of John, that is an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to showing off the glory and the fullness of who Jesus is. And his followers got to see it. Now, it wasn't in its fullness yet. Again, that came in his death and resurrection and ascension, and it will come in its fullness at his return. And I think that leads us to say, too, like, like if that's true and Jesus reveals his glory to those who follow, the, follow him, then, then what is he waiting for? Like, Redemption Hill, we, we studied Revelation the first six months of this year, and, and that's one of the big questions of Revelation. Like, it's a, a, a book that gives incredible hope when things are hard, but, but it also kind of leaves that haunting question, right? Like, what's taking so long? Like, but, but maybe... When Jesus says, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's saying that our lives right now aren't supposed to be comfortable so everything goes well, but our lives right now are supposed to build a greater hunger and thirst within us. Maybe the suffering we experience now will only make it sweeter when Christ does return. Because we'll find that he has saved the best wine for last. The question is, do we trust him as the master of the feast? Spurgeon said, he is making you fit for the best wine, that he may be glorified by the trial of your faith. If it were in my power to go to heaven tonight and I could enter there, yet I should have suspicion that there was one more thing, one, that, that there was more to do or more to suffer here, I would infinitely prefer to wait my father's time because methinks in heaven we shall bless God for all that we have suffered." The best is yet to come. Seventh characteristic of Christ's kingdom is that faith is our passport into Jesus' kingdom. And so Jesus provides the true rest. He is the only authority in his kingdom. He will provide for our needs. He does new work that replaces the old. He leads the way in celebration. He reveals his glory to those who follow him. And our only job is to turn in faith and belief. And what does that mean? I think we see two examples of it here. The first is Mary, which, look, and Mary is a beautiful example of faith to us throughout Scripture. She believed when God came, when Gabriel came to her, and she turned in faith over and over and over again. I know Protestants get a little bit weird talking about Mary. Like, if we talk about Mary, we're going to turn to Catholic. We don't have to pray to Mary, and in fact, if there's any evidence we shouldn't pray to Mary, it's probably this story, Right? Because Jesus' response to Mary was, woman, my hour hasn't come. But do you see what Mary does? She's not dissuaded. What she, she turns to, when Jesus says, what is this to me? My hour hasn't come. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. Now, there's a motherliness to that, but it's trust. Mary shook off the gentle rebuke, and we see faith in her. Don Carson says here, she still doesn't know what he's going to do, but she has committed the matter to him and trusts him. And so that's the question today. As you hear about Christ's kingdom and you see this portrait of him, do you trust him? Will you commit your life to him? And trust what he will do, not knowing what it's going to bring. Tony Evans says here, Mary's words ought to ring in our ears. The Lord wants us to do whatever he tells us. He often doesn't describe the path that he's taking us on. He doesn't explain how he intends to, to deal with our problems. He simply calls us to obey his revealed word. And only after we've obeyed will we have the opportunity to experience him at a deeper level. And so Mary shows us what it looks like to trust Jesus, even when we don't know what's going to happen. And then we have the example of the disciples, that they believed in him, they, their hearts trusted him, they experienced a taste of the, his eternal kingdom, and they believed because of it. And so remember, the whole purpose of John's gospel is that he wrote these things down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John was there at this wedding celebration. 
He tasted that wine. I'm convinced that what John got to taste is he got to taste a, a foretaste of the wine of the messianic kingdom that he, has been, had spent, that he then spent the rest of his life looking ahead to. And so when he wrote Revelation and was writing about the marriage supper of the Lamb, he knew what he was expecting, that he could still remember that moment. It was, it, it was seared into him and into his soul because it wasn't just the first miracle he witnessed. It wasn't just a magic trick. It was a revelation of the glory of Jesus and a foretaste of his kingdom. And so this is what the kingdom of God is like. Like a wedding feast. And the best is yet to come. That's the hope we have from the text. Now, I use that today because, um, because of my grandma. My grandma was a Sinatra fan, and yes, that is a Sinatra song. And I'm not saying it's a Christian song at all. If you go read the lyrics, it isn't. <laughs> but there's a moment that I'll never forget that I think it was our first Good Friday service we ever did as a church before my grandma has died, but she's now gone to be with Jesus. And, and in our, I think it was our first Good Friday service ever um, we had our elders in the front here, and we served communion, and in the before times, pre-pandemic, we used to um, practice intinctions, so people would come forward and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, and so we were standing and holding the bread and would hand a piece, and I explained, you know, you'll take the piece and then dip it in the cup, and, um, and so my grandma came forward to where I was standing, we had like four stations on the front, came forward to where I was standing, and there was a cup of wine and a cup of juice, and maybe she didn't hear me. Maybe as my grandma, she's just was going to be defiant, um, like Mary with Jesus here. Like, and, and so grandma came up, and she picked up the glass of wine and started drinking it. She didn't stop. Grandma drained it, <laughs> like five ounces of, wine, of red wine at our first Good Friday service. And I was watching it going like, do I try to stop grandma? Or do I... Like, what's my move here? Anybody else that comes to where I'm standing, I guess they're dipping in juice because the wine is gone. But when she died, this is some, a story I told at her funeral because most of my family aren't Christians. And as I was able to say, Leanne, who we named our second daughter for, knew Jesus. And as a Sinatra fan, the, there's two lines in that song that we've only tasted the wine and we're going to drain the cup dry. She had a sense of celebration and zest for life, and in that moment, probably celebrated the Lord's Supper more faithfully than we can with these little, pla little plastic cups. Like, the, the Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing. It's, it's a shadow and a glimmer of the feast to come. And we've got to remember that, even when we celebrate, even though it's in a minimized form, that what we are celebrating looks ahead to the feast in Christ's presence forever. That his broken body and his spilled blood is what makes it possible for us to enter into God's presence. And that is just a beginning that we will be with him for eternity. And so let's never forget that Jesus is the new wine, that that our desperation and emptiness that we bring him to is like the stone jars, but, but that only gives him, our emptiness only gives him greater opportunity to show his abundance and fullness and to provide something better for us. And so if you're a Christian, this is the king we serve. This is the kingdom we're a part of. 
that our lives should look like, that our church should look like, an overflow of abundance and celebration and generosity in whatever we face. And if you're not a Christian, what are you waiting for? What else are you hoping for? There is nothing that you can have. There is nothing that you can taste. There is nothing that you can use for your own escape in this world and in this life now that is going to come close to the feast that's in front of us. Don't waste any more time. There's something better. Father, would you, would you remind us of that? Would you, would you instill that into us? Would you move by your spirit to help us to trust that what Jesus offers us is better? That it's a better kingdom. It's a better sacrifice, it's a better joy, it's a better celebration, it's, it's better wine and, and feasting and, that we have in front of us. And would you forgive us for all the empty things that we turn to? Open our eyes and give us a glimpse of his glory today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.